Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is the Mark Boris Podcast. Morning, episode 10. Uh, miserable day outside. I'll give you a quick traffic update. Traffic looks okay. That's it. Now you're up to date. Uh, look, I've been getting some great videos over the last uh, few days. Um, some good ideas, some great innovative uh, pitches, some strong pitches. So I'm going to talk about those a little bit later on. And In fact, there's one at least one in there that I'd like to uh, invite in that we, I'd like to film and ask more questions of. Um, we're getting lots of questions, um, and I'm going to talk about what I've been thinking about this week. Uh, by the way, Angela Mentis from NAB um, is coming in next week. So um, due to her mishap last week, she couldn't come in, but she's uh, now rescheduled and she'll be back here next week for episode 11. This week's top five... Okay, let's look at what's important this week economically. GDP, gross domestic product, which is sort of the measure of how our economy is going. It's like our profit and loss account, so to speak. It actually doesn't measure uh, losses, it just measures or expenditure. It sort of measures revenue by using a certain methodology. Um, as you know, um, I've said many, many times, the Reserve Bank and the Treasury would like to see GDP, gross domestic product, growing at around 3.25% per annum. We have been um, operating below trend for a long, long time. That's our trend, 3.25% per annum growth of GDP. We're talking about trillions of dollars here. Um, so the number came out. Australia's March quarter gross domestic product shows the economy grew by 0.9% for the quarter, leaving an annualised growth of 23 In other words, too low. Um, that's not a good enough number. That's not a good enough number for the Treasury. Treasury would worry about that. Um, the Reserve Bank's worried about that. What that tells me is for sure, if that is a consistent, sustainable number, that interest rates are going to stay where they are. They could even go down lower. So GDP lagging from trend, lagging way behind trend, doesn't look great. They normally go through – there's a whole lot of adjustments they make too. They call seasonal adjustments. Um, they adjust them for the season because, you know, obviously we have seasonality in this country for a whole lot of reasons. I don't really think it's necessary at this stage to go through the seasonality and the adjustments, um, but you just should bear in mind that the next GDP number that will come out in three months' time uh, will seasonally adjust the last number so we'll get a better idea of you know, how, how we really went in the March quarter. There, there could be an adjustment up or down. In terms of retail, tr- retail trade figures, they came out as well. Um, for two thousand uh, for March two thousand fifteen March quarter, uh, some of the things you need to understand is that retail trade is slightly up, 
which is quite good, uh, and that has been adjusted for, for seasonality. Uh, the things, the the areas in retail trade that did well, in other words, were rising, were cafes, restaurants, takeaway, food services, clothing, footwear, and personal accessory retailing. Um, household goods was pretty much unchanged. Uh, there were falls in other areas, but the most important thing is to understand that cafes, restaurants, takeaway, food services are up. What's interesting about that retail trade number is that it doesn't include any of the government budget initiatives, which probably will show next quarter some increases in um, retail trade as far as they um, affect things like stuff that Harvey Norman will sell you and stuff that um, tradesmen will buy, etc. So I expect to see another change in the retail trade figures and probably more likely for the next quarter will be up. Um, the NAB Business Confidence Survey, very important survey, come, has come out. Um, and it is tracking upwards. Now, that's no surprise because we just had a budget that actually was directed to business owners. Um, and in other words, they're feeling a bit more confident about things. Things are looking better. It doesn't necessarily mean the businesses are doing better. It just means they feel confident. And that confidence could be as a result of the, uh, the government's um, initiatives. And there is a lot of advertising on television at the moment. Uh, we see a lot of government ads around the $20,000 tax deduction, et cetera, and making things easier and uh, fine-tuning the way businesses operate. There's a, a, an advertising campaign that also would make businesses feel more confident at the moment, which is an important thing. Confidence is important. Um, doesn't necessarily uh, That doesn't necessarily end up in being uh, higher revenues or better GDP or anything like that, but uh, it's a good sign and it's important. What's interesting I would like just like to refer you back to is that in January 2009, that's sort of pretty much at the top of the um, GFC, um, the number in the NAB Business Confidence Survey was minus 31.6. In other words, a long way from the number which which uh, NAB came up with uh, yesterday. Um, in 2010, it was then up 20, so way above where we are today, and some back at the end of 2010, so it went right back down towards the, the negative territory. It was back up to 18 in 2011 and fairly steady 12 and right through to now. What that basically means is what we're going to understand about these surveys is it's it's the confidence today relative to the confidence a quarter ago, in other words, a quarter of a year ago. So it doesn't necessarily mean that we're in a trend of increasing confidence in business and that the whole planet or the whole Australian planet is doing fantastically well and everybody's really, really confident. Basically, it means that relative to the last survey, people are feeling more confident. So it depends on – the increase depends on the base – so where you start in terms of the base. So I'm not sure um, how you should read the NAB business confidence survey and run out and sort of saying, well, I better set up my business today and uh, start uh, selling things and buying things and stocking up and increasing my inventory and going off and buying um, plant equipment and doing it with my ears pinned back and my tail up. It doesn't necessarily mean that the world's all of a sudden turned perfectly. So... Bear that in mind. Um, what you should do is look at the NAB business survey, confidence surveys, and look at the trend over the past three years and, and look at which way it's heading. Or more importantly, see what the volatility looks like. Okay. So I got some uh, really interesting YouTube pictures. Now, I've got a couple here I'm going to talk about. In fact, there's, there's one in particular I would like to invite in and if this particular individual is interested in coming in. Um, one of the things I want to say to you is that some of you have um, some commercial confidence information in your pitch that you don't really want to put on YouTube, which I get. I get that. I understand that. So 
What you can do with those things is you can put them into my Dropbox or into a Dropbox, which I can access, which means the public can't access. Or alternatively, you can send it in a separate email and you can put a video in the email pitch. If you feel as though something is commercial in confidence and that you don't want to let the world know about it or you're about to launch something and uh, you don't want to muck up your marketing launch, etc. So I've had two of those. Um, and, you know, it, it works. They did do a pitch as well on YouTube, but, but then directed me to where I had to go. That worked. What I like about it, all, all of the ones that I've got, I've got here today are all innovative. They're very creative. And that's a great thing. That's, that's the Australian spirit, um, innovating and creating. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've developed a lot of great things in this country, which has come out of necessity. Um, but I do want to talk about, for example, Sarah Archibald's uh, send in a 10-minute pitch, which she then resubmitted in three minutes. Sarah's talking about Defence Force veterans and emergency service personnel to run their own small business, educating children about their roles in the services. It helps raise awareness amongst children, helps vets reconnect with the community. I think it would help with veterans getting over their mental health issues. It would help children understand the effects of our younger veterans and their ability to... Um, serve the community and continue to serve the community and respect them for the job that they've done. I, I don't. I, I think it's a, a it's a very honourable sort of uh, pitch. It makes sense, but I don't really see Sarah where the business is in this. Um, it's this seems to be more like a social service, a community service, um, which is cool. Uh, but I don't really see this being something which investors would want to invest in because that's the bottom line. Can we get investors interested in this thing? Because investors are only interested in this sort of thing. If they're going to make money themselves, they want to return on their money. Uh, this is not necessarily one of those sorts of um, pitches. I don't know. You might have something else that you're thinking of that can commercialise. I don't really know how we commercialise this one. Um, so so good luck to you on this one. Um, it's a great initiative. Again, it uh, shows a fair bit of awareness about what's going on in your particular community. Maybe you need to give me a little bit more information about this and t- tell me how we can make some money out of it. Could it be something that she could maybe sell to governments as, as an education tool, do you think, Mark? Yeah, but governments, yeah, yeah she could, but governments don't like pain. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's not really a great business. No. You know, go- interactions with governments probably is not where an investor would want to be. Mm-hmm. I know we're talking about investors here. So Brad Morgan, he's got the retail thong business and he's going to call it Barefoot Boulevard. My name's Brad Morgan. And I'm planning to open a chain of retail stores in Australia, New Zealand and Asia, selling premium thongs and sandals. A little bit about myself, I'm 38 years old, I have a young family, I currently run a successful retail and online business. I'm leaving that job and I'm using what money I have to fund this business venture. The opportunity for this concept came about purely because thongs and sandals are are very much in our culture. I want to create a one-stop shop selling premium thongs and sandals from credible brands. Brands such as Reef, Birkenstock and Javianas to name a few. I want to create a concept where these products are the hero products. They are front and centre in a retail environment. Uh, he claims it already exists in the US. Um... I did have a look at that, Mark, and, uh, and I couldn't find any evidence of this particular hero thong shop right. uh, in the US. I did find one called Sanook. They make their own brand of thongs, but there didn't seem to be one website that you could go to that had all the major brands. Yeah, I guess what he's talking about is this concept of aggregation. So what he's saying is if I aggregate all the thong suppliers in one place online, then there's a one-stop shop. And if you want to buy, I don't know, 
Havianas or whatever the hell these different thongs are. You can Birkenstocks. Go, yeah, you can buy them in one place, which sort of, that's that's cool. Yeah, it makes sort of sense. Um, but you've got massive competition. You've got co- competition at every single store. And, you know, if you go out to Byron Bay, you can buy thongs in every, in every, every shop. Um, thongs tend to be uh, more of an ancillary purchase and one of those things, oh, my thong broke, I'll go and buy a pair of thongs. Mm. I'm not sure whether people actually may get a special trip um, and or are going to go to a website uh, for, to do that. It doesn't mean, you know, like you're not going to take market share is, what I, is I guess what I'm saying. So aggregation though as a concept is a good concept. So a lot of times um, a product can be sold in many brands in many forms. For example, thongs, you know, you've got a variety of thongs, a variety of brands, a variety of styles, um, and, and this can apply to any product, so those who are listening, um, and aggregating those into one place sometimes makes a lot of commercial sense and because a lot of people would like to go and actually go to the one place to know where they can buy it for sure. In other words, they might want uh, Havianas and they might go down to the short store here, but they don't sell those, they only sell Australian ones, for example, and someone might get annoyed. Um, so therefore, there is a case for aggregation. Now, whether there is a case for aggregation for thongs, I don't know the answer to that. Again, I don't see it as being a big margin business. Um, there wouldn't be much margin in these things um, in a pair of thongs. You can't sell them for more, more money than anybody else sells them for. So, you know, you're going to have to sell them for the same price everyone else sells them for. So you're margin bound. You're a price taker. The market determines the price. You can't just say, well, you ask whatever price you like. So there's no uniqueness about this. Um, so which means... If your margin's low, you've got to sell shitloads of them, like shitloads, um, and you've got to be the place. You've got to be the dominant place. You've got to be the aggregation, the place everyone goes to. So the cost of building your brand will be a, a small fortune, um, and you've got to build the brand above and above everybody else. So I just get the feeling in terms of profit and loss, it's a tough one, and I, it's a great idea. I, I love the concept of aggregation, but I don't think it's one that's going to make a lot of money, Brad. So, mate, I don't know. It's not one for me. Um, Anthony Marsh has come up with one called AeroEye, which is Intelligent Aer- Aerial Data. Drones is uh, the way he's going to get it. A business that I started to capture intelligent aerial data for clients to help them make more informed business decisions. Uh, around this time last year, I was in the US on holidays, and I read this article about... Uh, the recent advances in unmanned aerial vehicles, uh, better known to most as drones, and some of their commercial applications. Uh, as a bit of a tech geek with a pilot's license, a background in aerospace engineering, and a love for small business, uh, starting my first at the age of 14, I thought, wow, finally this was perhaps a way that I could bring all of these passions together. Look, I, I think the drone thing is a really big change in the way we do things. Uh, drones are a massive change in the way data is going to be gathered through film um, and through capturing uh, uh, images. Uh, it's very, very important. Uh, in fact, you know, the Navy uses drones, the Army uses drones. I mean, I saw a, something recently where they said, why would you spend a billion dollars on a submarine when you could have 10,000 drones under the sea? Why would you spend a billion dollars on an aeroplane we could have 10,000 drones in the air? Um, and they can cover the whole sky, and they're they're so they're so fantastic these days. They can go up miles in the in the air, and you can't even see them, nor can you detect them because they're so small. I get it. Um, this this idea, Anthony. Uh, the question that I would ask you is, um, how do you commercialise it again? How would I get investors interested in this for you? Um, what does your profit loss look like? Um, what's your uh, 
future cash flow look like and who's your customer and what does your customer want and why is what you're doing something that's going to create demands? In other words, why would a golf course owner pay you money or many golf course owners pay you money to tell them, for example, where all the divots are or where all the work needs to be done and how does that actually save them money? So it's got to save them money or make them money before they'll spend money with you. Every time business owners, I look at it this way. If I'm going to spend money with a consultant or with a contractor in my business, I'm only going to spend the money if it's going to make me money or save me money. Otherwise, I don't spend it. So you've got to work out what is it you're going to save a golf course owner or how do you make the golf course owner money in order for him to spend money with you and how many golf course owners are prepared to do that. That's what I don't get. Um, you need to give that to me. That, that's a really important one. Christian Rizzo, um, he's combined his love of travel. He's currently in London. He sent me some photographs of himself there in London and uh, he's designed a, um, a market for uh, travellers. doesn't matter whether you're you – know, it could be a, an airline pilot or – um, whatever, uh, just basically travellers of any type who's, who have this problem staying in hotels and not being able to access gyms or not even being able to get to the hotel with the gym. Hi Mark, hi Jess, hi Jake. I'm Christian, I'm 24 from Brisbane, currently in London as you can see. I've been travelling for the last five weeks listening to your podcast and I thought I'd share my idea with you. My business is Flying Fit Australia and it combines my love of travel with my passion for fitness. Now Flying Fit is a lightweight fitness pack that utilizes resistance bands, and when combined with the Flying Fit application on your smart device, allows users to achieve their fitness goals no matter where in the world they are. Gyms aren't as prevalent overseas as they are in this country. It's, it's sort of quite a different scenario. They are starting to develop that way in lots of other countries, but a lot of places like London, for example, there's not that many gyms compared to here. Plus, you're not a member of somewhere, and it's a bit of a hassle. Um, I recently experienced this in Singapore. You know, I, had a, I went and joined uh, Fitness First. They were charging me... Um, 50, 50 Singapore dollars a day to go to fitness first. Now, you know, that's okay for me, but, you know, the, the general average person is going to find that a bit expensive, a bit, bit challenging, and, uh, and I think that's fair enough. So I, um, I think his idea is a good idea. So there's demand for this. The question is, mate, is that because you're overseas, you didn't have your stuff, you couldn't show it to me, I would like to see it as a demonstration. So I'm actually interested in what you've got um, to see. I, I wouldn't mind seeing it, um, and I might actually get you to come in at some stage and just demonstrate it to us and show us how it all works. I'm curious about it. question is, is how, how, how hard is it to uh, pack? I mean, is it, is it in a sort of a you know, nice tight thing I can just shove in my bag and I don't have to take up too much room because room is at a premium in my bag and I don't want to have to take a bag through the – put the bag in the plane. I want to actually carry it on with me so I can get off straight away or I don't lose my bags, which happens nine times out of ten every time I put my bag in the hole, it gets lost. So um, I don't – space is a premium here. Um, but you're seeking investment and mentorship. Um, look, I'm happy to give you some mentorship at this stage. The investment, again, I don't know the profitability. So I don't get – the demand for it, um, and you need to start to do some surveys or some research around this. But you're an interesting one. I wouldn't mind talking to you. Okay, so we've got some good stuff. So, again, as I said, it's all about find the problem, identify the marketplace, where the demand's going to come from. Is it a, are you aggregating something or are you just doing something unique and particularly unique for yourself? Do a time motion study as to... Now, how it all works from this point to the end point, from the beginning to the end, actually go step everything. There's someone like UPS, for example, United Parcel Service in the United States. They do time motion studies on everything. They know that when a driver gets in his car to deliver a parcel, 
how long it takes him to actually get in the car, open the door, sit down, put the key in the ignition, turn the ignition on and put his foot on the pedal and go forward. They know actually in, by second, by the second. So much so, then they say, okay, well, let's make sure drivers forget where the key is. So they're looking through their pocket. So what they do is they put the key on a ring that sits on the driver's little finger. So it's always there. These time and motion studies are the things that make a difference between total efficiency and, and, and real demand for a product and or service that works. It's not good enough to come up with a broad brush idea. It's not something people will invest in. You need to have it all. You can have the broad brush idea, but then you need to map it all out in segments, small segments, so the investor knows exactly what he or she is up for. So if you've got that idea and it's bubbling away, make sure that you take an opportunity to send it in. Mark Boris is going to have a look at this. He watched the videos last night. He's giving out free advice. Get your pitch together, three minutes maximum, load it up to YouTube, select the privacy setting if you want to or Dropbox it, but make sure you send it in because Mark Boris is going to have a look at it. And if you're lucky, he'll be giving you some free advice. Our, our fearless economic leader, the Treasurer, this week said something quite interesting. And, and you know, the papers are all, all, all over the poor bloke. Um, uh, what he said was, well, first of all, he didn't make the statement other, uh, as opposed to he was making a response to a question that was put to him about house affordability in Sydney. So let's contextualise this. We're not talking about affordability houses in Australia. We're talking about affordability houses in Sydney. And, of course, um, the journalists are making a big deal, commentators make a big deal about the expensive prices of House of Sydney. Now, it makes, a good ha- it makes a good headline. The headline's in the papers every week. This place sold for a million dollars to a Chinese couple. So, you know, they have to throw Chinese in there to sort of, you know, spice it up. Um, you know, I don't know what the relevance of a Chinese couple buying, paying a million dollars for House in Blacktown was. I don't understand it. Sure, that's a, probably a record price, but there might be some reason for that. I mean, the, maybe the property was... You know, an acre big, I don't know. There, there's some reason why it's a million bucks. There's no way. It's not just some little corner sh- house on the corner for a million dollars. It doesn't work that way. There's something else going on. Maybe it's a knockdown job. Maybe it's, you can put three houses on there. Maybe you can put a block of apartments on there. I don't know. But that's sort of where it's unfair from a commentator's point of view. Anyway, some commentators have thrown at Joe um, this question. You know, how, how is it? How is house affordability in Australia? In other words, how is affordability in this country? And actually r- using Sydney data as the... That was the ba- as the basis upon which they asked the question. Of course, Joe's response was, probably wasn't that well uh, phrased, but get a good job that pays good money. Now, Joe was basically saying, in order to borrow money in this country, you have to prove to your uh, lender that you have a good job. In other words, you have a, a steady job or you have steady income. That Yeah, that makes sense. And also, you have to have re- be receiving the right amount of wages to pay the mortgage. Otherwise, you won't get the loan. I don't think the Treasurer meant, well, only people with good jobs and earning good money deserve to have a house in Sydney. I don't think that's what it means. Now, of course, it can look that way because Joe might have gaffed. Now, I think that's probably the best way of putting it. Um, and could have selected the way he said it a lot better. But Put it into context. There's no way in the world this treasurer is actually standing there pointing his finger at people saying, go and get a fucking good job and get good money. I mean, there's no way in the world that he's not stupid. 
Um, I just don't understand why everybody's having a crack at him. And um, there may be other things you could have a crack at him about, but not that. That just seems to me to be really insignificant, petty, and t- totally out of context and unfair. And uh, you know, if and if the you know the newspapers want to go for him, you know, they're going to go for him anyway for, for a whole lot of reasons. But you know, it's, let's get it right, Sydney. Let's get it right, people. Um, I, my view is house prices. In, in Australia are only where they are because people can afford to pay that sort of money. <laughs> and people can only afford to pay that sort of money is because lenders are prepared to lend that sort of money and lenders are only prepared to lend that sort of money is because their wages service that debt. So there's, these, these are just economic outcomes as a result of our economy. They're not, they're not you know, it's, it's not unsustainable or uh, unfair or whatever. It's got nothing to do with Chinese. And the Chinese don't buy all the real estate in Australia. They buy maybe 3 or 4% maximum. Uh, most of the real estate has been bought by Australians. They might have a Chinese name, but that doesn't mean they're Chinese. You know, there might be some hardworking person being working down there in, you know, in Hurstville or Chatswood or, you know, Punchbowl Lakemba for the last two generations with a Chinese surname. It doesn't necessarily follow that... Uh, you know, we're getting invaded and there's some sort of problem and that only people with lots of money can afford to buy real estate in the city, which is sort of where the commentators are trying to take this. I don't accept it. And I, I sort of accept what Joe's saying. From Mark's mind. Jess, you asked me last night about leadership and motivation and inspiration. And uh, I, I sort of took a moment to think about this. I, I really, I think um, leadership is a little bit over-egged. Um, so leadership to me is in two parts. A good leader is somebody who at a, is best tested when things are going tough and that particular leader will do something extraordinary or abnormal that everybody else will be motivated by. So it's not motivational talking. It's not sending out great emails to everybody and saying, "Look, team, wonderful job," and all that sort of stuff. I mean, they're important things, but that, that's not a good leader or a great leader. Um, it's when things get tough and when you're up, up against it that a leader actually sort of rises to the top. And it doesn't necessarily mean that person who's been appointed a leader will rise to the top. A leader will rise to the top during that period. And what the leader will do is he or she will do something that will motivate everybody to to have a crack on and get going. So you see it in football teams all the time, you know, great leaders will, when they've got the back to the wall, they're getting pressed, they're getting pressed, they're getting pressed, they'll do something extraordinary. They'll put their body on the line and do something that no one, not the rest of the team wouldn't do. But as soon as he does it or she does it, then the rest of the team follows and they all do it. That's that's sort of good leadership. But in a very isolated environment, that's, that's, a, that's about it. That's all a leader can do, him or herself. Now, that could be leading through intellect, intellectual ideas. It could be in a physical sense if you're in a football team or a, whatever, some sporting environment. Um, it could be sort of an emotional leadership. Um, you know, you take the moral high ground on something when uh, no one else is prepared to and you show strength of character. Um, but it, it's sort of that more isolated events and they usually only come about when we're getting tested. But for a... Leader to, as an appointed leader, um, to do well in his or her job, they need to have what I call followship, not leadership. And followership means that people want to follow you. 
then you have to ask yourself the question, well, why would someone want to follow me? Well, um, you might be the guy or girl who set up the business and you've built a brand and a message around that particular business, why you were doing it. This is the purpose question we've talked about before. And the people who want to follow you are the people who you either select or, or select you to be part of that message. They want to be, they want to have some reflection of that brand onto their brand. So I think it's important that when you choose people to work for you as a leader, you choose those people or select those people who you believe have the need for the reflection of what you're doing onto their own brand. Now, that's a pretty important employment sort of criteria, you've got to look for people who are looking to be part of what you're doing. So like you know, Jesus Christ is a good example. <laughs> he went out and chose his 12 apostles. They didn't choose him, he chose them. He tw- chose 12 people who are looking for uh, a, a brand and a message around taking on the Romans and taking on the, the incumbent religion, which was a Jewish religion, and changing things. Sort of they were revolutionaries and rebellious um, and look what happened. He chose his 12 apostles. And my view is that um, if you want to be a leader, you've got to choose your people to follow you. And, um, and that's how you build fellowship. And those people then choose people to follow them. And then they choose people to follow them. And they, so the business grows. And it starts off, though, with the brand or the message. And the brand or the message, and, and which is really the purpose, the business purpose. What's that most important trait that you're looking for in, in followership? What do you want to see in people? Who I don't really care business? what it is, Jess. I really ambition. I, I'm 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 interested. Yeah, I, I'm not in care. I don't care whether the. I'm not interested in what they're interested in. I'm interested in selecting people who are interested in what I'm interested in. So, um, I need people who are ambitious. Yes, I need people though who are ambitious in my field, in the field that say that I choose, like Yellow Brick Road or TZ or whatever it is, Anteo. Um, and I'm looking for people who want to attach themselves to what my business is doing, and I'm looking for people who uh, will do whatever it takes to get to where they need to get to. I'm talking in terms of senior senior guys, senior girls, and then I expect those people to inculcate the same process down the line, and that's how you build a following. You know, you're trying to build a following all the time. So you've got to have your main team want to follow you as opposed to you leading them. It's not about bossing people around and saying, come on, we're going to do this, we're going to go here, we're going to do that. You know, that's not how it works. Um, you've got to have people who are sort of looking to follow everything you do, which means it puts pressure on you because you're then going to have to go pretty fast for everybody and you're always sort of making sure you accommodate everybody else. So I'm, I think good leadership is about good selection processes, selecting good people to be around you uh, and people who are like-minded and understand what it is you're trying to do and want to prosecute the thing you want to do. And I'm assuming that, you know, you've got a good purpose and a right purpose in the, in the beginning. So in, in a place like Yellow Brick Road, you know, I want people who want to take on the big organisations. That's got to be their mindset. Um, I don't want someone who wants to work for the Commonwealth Bank. There's no point working for Yellow Brick Road if you, you want to be in a big bank environment because it's not going to work. Um, and they're not going to, they're not going to, going to prosecute um, our business, which means my leadership skills are going to be challenged all the time because they're going to be challenging me in the way they think and the way they operate. And there's no point being challenged in that sort of, in that sort of way. You, you can be challenged intellectually but not in a, in a character sense. You can't have someone cha- their character challenging your character because they're on a completely different platform to where you are. You might as well not waste your time with those sort of people. So, 
And this whole process of inspiring people, uh, you know, I've seen it a million times over. Motivation and inspiration. Um, if you, if you, if people are looking at you for motivation, and inspiration, you probably got the wrong people. Um, they can go to go and listen to Arnold Schwarzenegger at a talk somewhere, get their motivation, and inspiration, pay three thousand bucks or whatever it is, and walk in. They get all motivated and inspired for an hour and a half or two hours. With Anthony, Anthony Robbins, whatever it is, and they walk out and for about, they talk about it for the next half an hour and they email and tweet for the next two hours and then the next day they wake up and think, shit, that was a lot of fucking money. Um, what do I get out of that? Nothing. Um, I, I just don't get that inspiration, motivation thing. You've got, it, it's, it's, they've got to be motivated within themselves and inspired within themselves in, and you, all you can do is pre, pre, uh, present them with a platform to execute in relation to that motivation, inspiration. So, you know, if you've got a group of people who are just sort of sitting there with wide-eyed, doe-eyed, waiting for you to walk in and motivate and inspire them, man, you've got nothing. That's just going to be effort. Um, and it's not going to come about as some, making some mad speech to them and sort of, you know, this is not about, this is not Churchillian, you know, this is not about Winston Churchill inspiring a nation and motivating a nation. It doesn't work in business. It just doesn't work. It's a minute-by-minute thing where everybody's following you all the time and, doing those things in a like-minded way. Um, and I, I went back to the example of, you know, the great JC and all his gang. Um, you know, Muhammad's another great example. He did the same thing. And uh, I'm sure there have been stacks and stacks of leaders in all sorts of religious environments who do exactly the same thing over and over and over again. And it's about fellowship. It's not about build and building fellowship and selecting the right people who are going to follow you. That first selection is so important, that first 10 or 12 people. Call them what you like, but, uh, you know, apostles, disciples, followers, um, prosecutors for you, whatever it is, um, they're the important p- people to get into your team. And then leadership then follows. But there will, be a, there will be a time when you get challenged by the macro environment, the environment around you, and then leadership will do that thing I said to you about before. It's going to be a Paul Gallon moment where, um, you know, he just puts his body on the line and everyone goes, whoa, that's what he or she's prepared to do. I'm going to do the same thing. And you can, those times you, can, you will motivate people and you can walk through walls. You do need that spark every now and then. But generally, day to day, day in, day out, it's about having people who are just completely obsessed and committed to being there. Entrepreneurs Inside. Mark, I know that uh, exercise is important to you, but how important do you think it is in business success? Do you think that you have to exercise to be successful in business? No. Okay. Like me to expand on that? <laughs> Tell me. So, but, but I look at a lot of really successful people and I see that many of them, they might run marathons or they might be training for a particular event, they seem to be really good at business but also have this dedication to exercise? Um, I don't think exercise creates success. I mean, it makes you healthy and allows you to be better at your job perhaps. It might give you a little bit more physical endurance and mental endurance. I don't think exercise correlates to success but I think the... Um, propensity to exercise and the propensity to do business have a common denominator, and I like to. And I think that uh, that marathon is a good example. I think that the propensity to be obsessive um, it 
correlates to success. And generally speaking, the, pro- the propensity to be obsessive or obsessed um, manifests itself not only in how you work but how you exercise. So lots of people I know who are very successful um, have obs- obsessive behaviour. So it might not be exercise, it might be something else. It could be drinking, it could be gambling, um, it could be uh, as well as business. It could be, um, oh, I don't know. Uh, uh, Adrenaline-seeking Yeah, yeah so that sort adventure. of, yeah, yeah, addictive sort of behaviour. Um, addictive, obsessive sort of behaviour. Um, and everything they do is at a million miles an hour and it's full on, it doesn't stop. Um, and, and they're doing it 24 hours a day. We talked about the other day about... Um, this you know, constant pitching that people do who are great at pitching, you know, great salespeople, um, that's an obsession. And uh, so it's, I, don't think, I, f- I don't find it's any surprise. It, it, it's no surprise to me that someone who's a, a, a marathon runner can be very good at business at the same time. Because to be a marathon runner, you've got to train all the time. You've got to do 23 kilometres and 40 kilometres, 100 kilometres, whatever it is they're doing, 44 kilometres all the time. And they're doing – and that, that takes a lot of – it's not just dedication. It's, it's, I think it goes way beyond dedication. I think it's um, that they can't live without it type of personality. So those people are equally effective as they are dangerous to themselves and to everything around you. They can be quite dangerous too um, because things can blow up quite easily. And they can just – they can have a – they can just smoke themselves. And we see it with sportsmen all the time. And Nick, you've probably experienced it with some of your clients, you know. They just smoke themselves. Indeed, indeed. You know, it, it, it just... But they, when they're on their, on their high, they are on their high and they're, they're unbeatable. And, uh, you know, to some extent I'm like that. Uh, I don't, I'm not saying I'm unbeatable, but I mean, I, I go through those, um, those, those um, phases, you know, um, where, I mean, I'll, I'll exercise and I'll work and I'll do all that sort of stuff and I'll keep it balanced, <clears throat> but then it gets unbalanced and then I'm doing too much of both. And then I, it just gets excessive, 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 excessive until I just can't do any more. And uh, uh, it's, not a, it's, it's not good for you because equally, you know, it can actually be uh, de- deleterious to your health, I think. Um, you don't sleep, then you just, your body's in t- constant motion you uh, think I've got to go train, then you start training twice a day, um, and then you, at the same time you're working and you're ra- racing from work to train for an hour. Even like I get to a point where I'll, I'll put things in my office which I can train, start training with during my, during the day. I find I get ten minute break, I start training, and then uh, and then I go back to my work. I mean, I'll get machines in, you know. I don't I don't even know why I do it sometimes. Uh, eventually, um, what happens? You start to get so tired. Um, you, you know, I start getting sore joints, sore muscles, aches and pains, injuries, um, and then and then I'll then I'll realise I'll have to pull back a little bit. So I, I'm not. So I guess my point, my answer to your question, Jess, is um, I don't think exercise itself helps you. People who are good at exercise actually helps them become better business. I mean, there is probably some marginal benefit of being healthy because I think that helps, but. I know plenty of guys are totally unhealthy, really good at business, totally unhealthy, really good business, but they have some other obsession. They, you know, and the reason they're unhealthy is because they might be a drinker or a smoker, but they'd be a mad smoker and a mad drinker. They're doing it all the time, but they're also working their ass off all the time. So uh, I guess if you're going to have an obsession, that should be exercise. What's a good balance for you? Is that training every day? Is it five days a week? 
well, um, I guess if someone was advising, they'd probably tell me don't train as much as you do. Um, but not everyone's fighting Danny Green. No, that's true. But, uh, but that's, that's another good, good example of obsession. That's me pushing myself to do something I probably shouldn't be doing. Um, yeah, but I, I know and I'm conscious about it. Uh, I, it's also more controlled. I sort of these days I'm in much more control of the situation. Um, uh, but what's a good balance for me? Um, look, if I exercise four four times a week, probably would be better instead of doing it every single day, seven days a week, and sometimes twice a day. Um, but that's just my personality type, um, and. Uh, you know, I, and I don't know if you can have more than two obsessions. <laughs> you know, so I got work and exercise. I really don't have another obsession. I don't have enough time for it. There's no, there's not, there's not enough packets packages in the day. Um, and I think I was talking to you the other day about, um, you know, people who have obsessions obsessions about washing their hands, cleanliness, for example. Um, that's interesting because um, those people might wash their hands ten times in an hour. Um, and that obsession is is not it's not because they want to have clean hands. It's something they have to do. That's probably a key to being successful in business. You have to do the business. Um, I'm sitting here looking at Nick. Right, Nick's a great communicator. I'll guarantee. I'll bet you. I don't know. I'm going to ask him now. But he sends emails and texts and rings all day long. That's why he's good at what he does. I mean, I'll bet you, Nick, you contact people who you probably don't even know because you read an article about something they said and you think, oh, I'm just going to send that guy an email, that girl an email, or I'll, you know, I'll send someone who knows them a note saying, wow, what so-and-so said or did was something or other. You're always communicating. Correct, yeah. All day long. <clears throat> Um, and I think it's about uh, things are just about routine as well. You know, if you if, if you're used to what you do, it's like when you're talking about Ron the other day, he's always pitching, you know. If, you, if you've got a routine, uh, whether it's exercise or constantly working or constantly communicating with someone, I think it's uh, – and when you break routine, like if you're not exercising, you're injured or you, you know, your you sort of life spirals out of control. So it's um, – I think routine's good. Routine's good. And your routine, though, is constantly being, you know, to communicate as a, as a person man, person, personal manager, business manager – um, to some extent, a uh, gatekeeper for a lot of people. Um, you are constantly communicating with those clients of yours, and you're constantly communicating with all those people who want to communicate with your clients. Correct. All day long. <clears throat> I think it's it's obsess- obsessive as well of you know always wanting to be on top of everything. You know, yeah. as soon as you, you know, uh, so I hate being sick, or I I I, uh, I lose my touch if I'm on holidays because it's you know I'm not on top of things. So it's um. I think, again, it comes back to being obsessive, you know, um, yeah, and, which is a good thing. I, what I would you say your other obsessions are your family? Family, yeah. yeah. And exercise? Yeah. So there, there's, so you've got good ones. You know, some people have obsessions with alcohol uh, plus business. Yeah. And, like, I, I, I know that, um, like, in the 80s, a lot of you guys weren't around in the 80s, but I knew people in those days who the obsession was not exercise in those days. It was drinking, going to lunch. Days of a long lunch, wasn't it? Long lunch, mm. but often long lunches, and they were really unhealthy. Mm. They drank a lot, but they did a lot of business too. You know, like that whole Bond period, that Alan Bond, like you know, that's topical. He just passed away. The people who who were in that environment, advisors and all these senior executives, like monster drinkers. I, I knew them. I knew them all very well. 
and so, so lunch a lot. The, 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 oh, big time, man! I was like, uh, they drank a lot, they partied a lot, but they did it in their own environment with their own people, and everything. Everything they discussed was about business the whole time. They weren't sort of talking about what was in the newspaper or you know. But America's Cup, that's how we got there. Bondi got there because he became obsessed with it mm. and he surrounded himself with all those people and they were obsessed with it. Today, exercise is much more more relevant and that lunching, long lunches is not is out a bit. But in the 80s, that was mental. Everybody drank and smoked cigarettes and hung outside for a long, 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 long time. And uh, and But all together, outside their office, but all together and talking about the business the whole time. Mm. It was an environment where they could talk about the business the whole time. Totally obsessed with both those both those outcomes. Ask Mark. Tweet Mark with your questions at Mark Boris. M-A-R-K-B-O-U-R-A-S. Mark, lots of people have been emailing and tweeting you. This one really caught my attention. Um, This is from another Mark. He says he loves the podcast. He wants to know, what are you reading? What are you listening to? What kind of apps are you using at the moment? Um, In terms of apps... Nothing in particular. I mean, one of the things I have been doing is I've been listening to podcasts, um, not because I'm looking for their content. I'm actually looking about looking as to how they do podcasts so I can do my own podcast as good as anybody else. So that's more research from my point of view. So I've been listening to This American Life and a whole, a, a whole series of other podcasts that were mostly out of the US um, and uh, more a curiosity process um, as to how these guys and girls actually form and structure it up and how they deliver on the podcast. So that's been interesting. Um, I'm not uh, – I'm, I'm stuck on my, um, my, my smart device all the time. So what, I'm, what I do in my spare time is try not to look on my smart device. Invariably, I end up back on it because I end up having to Google something. But um, I try to put that aside and I like magazines. I read magazines. I like reading um, um, American Scientific um, magazines about uh, scientific concepts um, – and uh, and cosmology, and I will tend to be reading through the magazine, particularly on aspects of neuroscience. I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in neuroscience. Um, it, it, more, the reason I'm interested in neuroscience is, um, a, it's totally outside of what I what I normally do. But the reason I'm interested in neuroscience also is because it gives me insights into the way people think, and uh, that helps me in my business. So um, I don't. For example, don't believe we have a mind. Um, yeah, people sort of think of the mind as something separate to the rest of the whole body. Um, I think the mind is part of the body and um, it's just a whole lot of chemical, electrical and, um, and to some extent um, magnetic responses to um, stimuli and therefore, and we have a thought as a result of that. And, of course, most people say, well, that's my mind. Um uh, so uh, yeah, so that's I like reading about that stuff. And I'll, uh, generally speaking, the magazine articles are usually that I like to read are no more than four or five pages long. And then they normally push me then into um, something on Google or YouTube. So I end up in YouTube or Google reading about what the article's talking about or reading about some of the references. I look at YouTube a bit, but. Sometimes I do TEDx things. Um, I'm not someone who's going to watch, look at a TEDx video to get inspired or whatever. It's just not my go. Um, I think I said earlier on about inspiration and motivation, how, where I f- feel it sits. So, uh, yeah, so I, I read magazines a lot. Um, but I, as I said, I subscribe to them. Though. I don't subscribe online. I actually like to 
get the magazine in my hand and and experience it too, turning the pages, looking at the pictures, thinking about it, feeling it. I like the tactile sensation of it as well. Um, I don't read newspapers very much. Um, uh, I scan through things and that, I do all that electronically um, in, in the morning or in the evening whenever I get a chance. Um, uh, I'm inundated with information daily in my business, just stacks of information. Um, I try to scan through things quickly. So on, as a sideline though, I look at something totally different, as I said, and I read scientific magazines, how the brain works, how our body works, um, and, uh, and I'm extremely interested in the chemistry of the mind. Looking forward, this is the week ahead. Later today, the Westpac Consumer Confidence Index comes out. Um, that's a pretty important confidence index. Um, we've got the uh, business index from NAB and we've got the consumer one from Westpac. Um, be interesting to see if they marry up. Um, obviously, business people are consumers as well, but business are, um, are fairly buoyant at the moment in terms of their confidence because of what the, the government did recently. Be interesting to see whether consumers are feeling the same thing. Um, our uh, Reserve Bank Governor comes out today uh, making speech following last week's rate decision. We'll see what he's got to say about the economy. And, of course, unemployment figures are out tomorrow, which is very important. Um, unemployment obviously is an indicator of the healthy economy. And, uh, of course, if you listen to what Mr Hockey said yesterday, if you're unemployed, you're never going to get a home loan. So uh, that's important. Let's go and see how many what the percentage of the unemployment is going to be, whether it's changed or not. And, of course, next week we have Angela Mentis. Uh, she is a, a really good person, a high-quality person, uh, she's from National Australia Bank. She runs the business part of the bank, which is extraordinarily large. NAB is the largest business bank in the country, has been for many, many years, um, has more business banking clients than anybody else. They, they are the envy of the whole banking industry. Everybody's trying to get the banking customers away from NAB. CBA's chasing them, ANZ's chasing them, St George is chasing them. Um, Angela's, Angela is a marked target in the marketplace and her part of the business. So uh, it'd be interesting to see how he, he or she's got to say and see how NAB and her, through her leadership, are going to compete. And let's talk to her a bit about her leadership too. She leads a big, big, big team and a big profit loss account there. So uh, keep your questions coming to me on my Twitter account, at Mark Boris, or email mb at markboris.com.au. Um, I'd be happy to answer your questions. Um, we're getting some great questions. I, I really am interested in people being innovative, creative, Start with a problem, come up with a solution. Henry Ford, thanks very much. This has been the Mark Boris Podcast. You can follow Mark on Twitter, at Mark Boris. And find out more at markboris.com.au. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.